Hello and welcome to Family Renewal. I'm Israel Wayne, your host. We hope you'll stay with us for the next 30 minutes as we take a look at faith, family, and culture, all through the lenses of a biblical worldview. This program is a production of the Ultimate Homeschool Radio Network. Hi, friends. Welcome to this episode of the Family Renewal Podcast. I am grateful to have my friend Randy, who works with Masterbooks uh, New Leaf Publishing Group. He is the vice president of marketing there. But Randy has a very unique background. Um, a lot of things I could say about Randy's experience. He, uh, of course, is a homeschooling father, has a background as being a pastor. He used to own a company that was involved in a homeschooling curriculum called Pennywise, and uh, now is currently working as marketing director or VP of marketing for uh, Masterbooks, which um, is one of the fastest growing Christian curriculum companies in the United States. Now, we will probably have Randy back on this program uh, several times in the future because there's a lot of different things that Randy's qualified to speak on. And I would love to be able to have his expertise and his insights on those issues. So I expect Randy to be a frequent guest on the Family Renewal podcast. But I wanted to talk to him today. Well, first of all, uh, Randy, before we dive into the topic, welcome to the show. Hey, thank you, Israel. It's awesome to be here. All right. So, but I wanted to talk today about picking a curriculum. Now, I know in the past, I think Brooke and I did a podcast on like choosing your curriculum approach, where we talked about unit studies and principal approach and Charlotte Mason and classical and eclectic and traditional textbook and all those kinds of things. So uh, I know we've talked about that, but what I want to talk about today is to, to use Randy's background in curriculum development and curriculum sales to help the customer make the best and most informed decision, uh, the best value, I guess I could say, in terms of their curriculum purchase. Because when you have multiple children, even if you don't, but if you, especially if you have multiple children and you're buying curriculum, it can get expensive. And we want to make sure that we're getting a good value because for us as homeschoolers, that's mighty important to us. And so um, I wanted to ask you, Randy, when somebody is looking for a curriculum, what are some general guidelines that they should look for to make sure that they are getting the best type of curriculum for their family, that they're making the best investments, they don't waste their money, so they don't get a product that's going to be inferior or get a product that's going to disappoint them in terms of its content. And so there's several different points in my mind that I think of that I, as a parent, when I'm considering buying a curriculum that I take into consideration. Um, one of those is cost, uh, because obviously, you know, the public schools, they spend like $12,000 per year per child expenses, right? Yeah. So as homeschoolers, we spend an average of $660 a year. That's the national average, $660 a year per child for homeschooling curriculum. So we're spending significantly less than private schools, significantly less than public schools, but we still want to be able to get the best possible value for our money. So I know there's a couple different mentalities that people have. Some people kind of feel like you get what you pay for in curriculum. And so the most expensive curriculum on the market must be the best. 
And if, if there's a curriculum out there that's video-based and it's $2,000 a year per child, um, it's got to be the best. And we're going to go with that because we want our child to have the best. There's also those that want to save money. And so they're always looking for the cheapest. So they'll line up 10 different math programs and they'll say, which one uh, is going to cost me the least amount of money? Don't really look at the content. They don't know or care much about what's in the math book. Um, but this one is $29.95 as opposed to the one that's $129.95. Uh, and they got everything in between and they're just going to go with the lowest cost. So what are some considerations as far as cost? Um, does, does cost really make a difference? Is it that you get what you pay for? Or what should people think about when they're thinking of uh, how much money to put into these materials? Yeah, I think that's a good question. I think you have to change the paradigm a little bit, right? I, my answer for the best curriculum is always it's the third curriculum. That's just, you're going to buy one curriculum. It may not work. Buy a second curriculum. It may be a shift in the entirely different direction. And then you find your curriculum. That's a funny way of saying when it comes to buying curriculum, you're the carpenter. Curriculum is a tool. You want to choose the best tool. And sometimes that tool is going to be inexpensive and sometimes it's going to be more expensive. What, one of the big mistakes we've seen over the years of helping families buy curriculum is they'll invest in a really expensive curriculum. One size fits all, meets every need. And then once they've made that commitment, they're afraid to shift when that curriculum doesn't work for an individual student, right? I have nine kids, Israel, you have 10 kids. You know that what works with one of your children it just can be an absolute failure with another another student. And so one of the things, like even with master books that we often say is there is no one size fits all curriculum. And don't be afraid to, to say this one didn't work. I'm going to try something else. In marketing, we call it growth hacking. It means we're not afraid to try new things, see what works. When something works, we apply more energy and resources in that direction. If it doesn't work, we retreat quickly and we don't hold on to our mistakes. Over the years, we've helped countless thousands and thousands of families with choosing curriculum and trying to encourage families to continue homeschooling. One of those biggest things is they got into a curriculum and the curriculum is burying them. Their kids are miserable. There's tension in the family. The husband thinks the wife has gone nuts. You know, it just it's like it's all breaking apart. Just a simple shift to let go of that curriculum, find the curriculum that works, and suddenly it's like, you know, the angels are singing. They, they, homeschooling has changed. So when it comes to, to price, what I would advise you to do is to just be wise, to realize that you may, you may, it may take two or three tries with a child to actually find a solution that works. When you've been homeschooling, as long as we have Israel, you have a library, right? So it's easy to go to the bookshelf and grab the curriculum that didn't work for the first three kids that magically works for kid number four. But when you're first starting out, you just have to give yourself a little bit of capacity book-wise. I don't think that price, you know, marketing is supply and demand, and you have to figure your market. If you produce a curriculum designed for a school market, you're going to sell that curriculum into a school. They're going to use that for three years. They don't have the option of not using it if it's a failure. And so, so publishers charge a little bit more for curriculum that's intended for schools. If you Can I stop it, you there? Can I stop you there? Yeah. Oh, that's a really, really relevant point. So what you're saying is one question that a consumer might want to ask is, was this curriculum developed for a, a school classroom? 100%. Or was it developed for a homeschool environment? So you're saying that can make a significant difference in terms of 
the price of the curriculum? Price and function. Okay. Function is huge. I'm talking all curriculum, but I use Masterbooks as, as an example. Masterbooks was written, um, the curriculum consultant, my wife has nine kids, homeschooled over 20 years. She knows a lot of what the realities of homeschooling through the seasons of life are. So, so it, when you plug it into a family that's living life and sitting at the table trying to homeschool, she's not required to sit there all day long and teach the courses. Now, when you, when you use a curriculum that was designed for a school environment, that's designed to have a teacher sitting there teaching the course, and, and she's teaching 20 or 30 students. And so, you know, my wife couldn't teach nine kids an hour for each course. She'd, she'd never sleep. So there has to be, you know, there's in design, it's, is it designed for the classroom or not? And then when it comes to the price, for sure, I've got to price my product in order to get my investment and be profitable and everything else in a way when you're dealing with a homeschool family you're buying for six kids and you're going to buy every year versus you're buying for a school environment where you're going to buy my textbooks once and then maybe use some of the consumables but the hard books you're going to use those for three years so i don't have i have another three years before i'm going to sell to you so from a marketing standpoint there's absolutely a difference in the pricing schemes that we have to have so you mentioned consumables versus textbooks or books that pass on from one student, you know, down to the, the next uh, year after year. In terms of investment, what are considerations that parents have to make there? I would think family size may be one, right? If you have one, one student that you're homeschooling, yeah. may, maybe that, you know, $250 textbook isn't going to be quite as important for you. Uh, whereas if you have 10 students that are coming along and you think you can duct tape that thing long enough that it'll hold together, then maybe it's, maybe it's a better buy for you. What about, uh, what about the, the cost, the cost benefit for the textbook versus the, uh, the consumable? What are your thoughts on that? I guess, I mean, one thing I'll say about some of the textbooks that are designed to last forever is you have to look at the content. Does the content change? Um, when we're talking about a product like science, science is changing. You know, if you have a book that's before 2010, 2012, uh, we've learned so much about DNA and the human genome projects and, and science is changing. And so from that standpoint, I, I, would, I wouldn't go too crazy on buying a curriculum that was, is, is locked in math you know, math is going to be fairly consistent. And so maybe, maybe that if you buy and invest in a book that you want to use with every student. But again, one of the things that we've seen in this over the years, you know, well, this, this curriculum worked fine for my first five children. I mean, I don't understand. And this child is just outside the box. And, you know, we, we melt down every time we pull it off the shelf. So you really, I think, I think you're healthier if you look at it on an individual child-by-child -child basis, and the investment I make into this child is the investment I'm making, and then um, if I can reuse it in the future, awesome, but if I can't, I've already accepted that reality. So I actually still have my high school science textbooks. I don't use those with my children, for what you just said. <laughs> it's, so much has changed. Uh, yeah. of what we know and what's available to us. For sure. Um, so, so another thing the, on the consumable side of things, some people may look at it and say, if I buy the PDF, and not all curriculum programs even offer that. I know Masterbooks does. So, some do. 
you can get a print version or a PDF version. Um, if I get a PDF version, I could buy it once. I could use it for 10 children, just print off the copies that I want um, and then put them in a ring binder or something like that, especially for the workbooks, the consumables. But then I've got paper and I've got toner and I've got time. Um, what what are what is the cost benefit to me or what are the considerations, I guess I should say, between my child having their own workbook and then possibly, you know, having a PDF that I use to print off? Just what are considerations there for the consumer? Yeah, I think if you're international, I think definitely a PDF makes it easier for you. Um, I think that when you're talking about uh, like a product like Masterbooks, the, the cost to actually buy the PDF and print it is going to be substantially higher than just buying the physical book. Okay, um, yeah, whoa, whoa, whoa. you're saying that it's going to cost you more to print that PDF than to just buy the book. But I'm not saving money in most cases if I'm buying the PDF. All the time. A book, you know, let's say our new uh, the language arts book, right? This book is all color and 500 pages. So this is a ream of paper that you're going to use plus a full printer cartridge with color. So by the time you buy the digital file, which is, it's discounted, but it still costs money to produce that product. By the time you purchase that and then print that book out, you've spent an ink cartridge or two, a ream of paper, plus the cost of product. And time. And time, yes. So from that standpoint, it will cost you more. Now, I don't know with other publishers how the, the digital product works necessarily. I think sometimes there's a perceived benefit of buying digital. And, you know, the other thing is, like, I don't know about your family, but my family goes through computers like water. And digital is hard to keep up with because what files were they in? We're always, like, trying to go through hard drives, trying to figure out where was the test bank for this book. It just is, it's a little bit more difficult sometimes keeping up with the digital. It works well in the short term, but in the long term, it can, it can have its challenges there. Some families are really good at, at just printing what they need, or if they have multiple students and they're teaching a multiple classroom, they'll buy one of those and then print off just the activity sheets that they use. I think it depends a lot on the family, but I do think that value for value, buying the most current edition and and the physical book, at least with, with what we do here at Masterbooks, is, is the best option. When I was being homeschooled in the 1980s, a lot of the homeschool curriculum that was being developed at that time was developed by real homeschoolers mm -hmm. who uh, saw a need. They weren't finding what they were looking for in the marketplace of, say, Christian school curriculum programs. And so they were creating little programs or supplements or whatever that you could use to teach a particular subject or usually not a full subject, but an angle perhaps. Yep. A lot of it was literally typed on a typewriter, photocopied, stapled together, sometimes no graphics or like just hand drawn stick figure graphics or whatever. Homeschoolers used that kind of thing back in the eighties because that's what we had. Right. We just didn't have a lot of access to it. And, and I, along with you, you know, I work with a lot of homeschooling families. I go to homeschool conferences. I look at a lot of the, the curricula. Some of it is very low production. So the low quality print, um, the, the graphics are poor. Uh, the, the graphics are dated. Some of it has a very kind of 1980s look to it. 
how important is aesthetics and, and just the visual appeal of the curriculum for a student? I mean, it's just a child, right? So does every page, because obviously the more that you get into, you know, beautiful graphics, glossy paper, you know, whatever, you're going to pay more for right. that. How important is it that the curriculum looks good? Is it important for the child that the curriculum looks good? Is it important for when our in-laws come over? <laughs> What's the value of, of the, on the aesthetic side? What, what do you think on that? I think there's something to be said for modern aesthetics in that we give weight to something that looks modern versus something that looks like it's 200 years old sometimes. I think it's, again, that concept of I'm the carpenter, curriculum is the tool. And sometimes grandpa's tools were the best tool to use for the job. Sometimes it's better to go down to Home Depot and buy the power tool that's going to get it done, right? Um, so I think, again, it's, it's not – I can explain to my child why it looks like an older material. But one thing I would say, too, is there has to be some level of – Charlotte Mason's a, a, a beautiful example, and, and this may be a controversial statement, but – that was when she came up with her ideas, which many of them are brilliant. We use a lot of the influences of Charlotte Mason. There's also a hundred plus years of childhood development research and scientific evidence now that we have on brain development and things that she didn't have access to. And so I think sometimes we have to look at, is there, how credible is it? You know, if it's pieces on a paper and it's sound wisdom and it's just simple, that's awesome. As long as it has some, some merit to also back it up. Mm -hmm. Cause I can also make things look real pretty and have no substance. Right. Right. Or, or something false. You can be teaching something false in a very aesthetically appealing curriculum. Absolutely. Absolutely. All right. So authority, yep. um, what is necessary in terms of authority for the authors of this curriculum? Do I need to look for a curriculum that has a PhD behind every author's name? Um, what are the values to someone who is uh, piled high and deep from an academic standpoint? Um, and, and what is the value of maybe having a curriculum that's developed by a homeschooling mother or a homeschooling father? How important are, are, is the credentialing? And are there some subjects, perhaps, that you, you might want that credentialing more than in other objects? What are your thoughts on that? Yeah, I do. I think that I think you have to be careful. I think in the Council of Many, there's wisdom. And I think that when you have material and it's subject to peer review and there's a team of authors that are able to evaluate it and, and check it for credibility, I think it it will, you know, when it hits the market, good marketing makes bad products fail faster. And so if, if it withstands the market as well, the integrity of the market, I think there's those aspects. I think in the homeschooling, we have this beautiful benefit, though, of common sense. And one of the biggest mistakes we can make is to copy an education system that's completely bust and think that that's the way we train our children. So what I've been amazed at is like in say with Masterbooks products, you know, a mom who has a lot of experience in homeschooling has worked with a lot of different curriculums says, no, this is what's important for, for a curriculum. And then it hits the market and the market responds and says, well, this works, but it doesn't feel like it should because it doesn't represent public school curriculum. Right. 
that's called common sense. Parenting is the reason it works. But then when you actually study the science, you find out that research shows that the more intelligent way to work was through the common sense approach that a mother would normally get who's raised, you know, a large family and homeschooled for 20 years. She just gets it because she's been there and done that where sometimes a PhD doesn't have that experience and, and can miss those aspects. So in my lifetime, I've worked with a lot of PhDs and for what they're qualified for and what they do has been amazing. Um, but that name doesn't always equate to a common sense approach. And so I think there has to be a balance, right? That credentials do have value, but so does common sense. And when there's a product that works, the proof is in the market that you see it. Uh, I think there's merit there. So I, I think, again, we have to be so discerning. In Israel, as believers, you know, the fact that Scripture says we can ask for wisdom and he'll give us wisdom. Even with Christian curriculums, we've seen this over the years. Just because it says Christian doesn't mean it holds to Christian values. I remember one curriculum. It was a fourth grade curriculum. It was teaching on women's rights, and it was using a secular textbook to do it. It said the Bible says this. However, we believe. And we just sat there shocked because we knew so many families who were using this curriculum and felt it was a Christian curriculum. It was godly. My kids were getting such influence. But yet that one statement is, speaks volumes, right? And, and I think we just have to be so discerning. So when it comes to the authors, the publishers, we really do need to ask the Lord to give us wisdom, to reveal to us truth and, and, and investigate a little bit what, what are the corporate values behind the companies that are publishing these or the authors. What is the fruit that we're seeing from these companies and is it consistent with what they say? So what's the difference between a curriculum being Christian and a curriculum having a biblical worldview? Well, I think there's Christian-friendly curriculums, meaning it may not have um, witches and and lewdness and those things that I could allow my children to be in front of, but it doesn't doesn't necessarily point to God as the source of all wisdom. You know, so it's Christian-friendly. My kids can watch it. It's like um, some movies where I can say it's G-rated, you guys can watch it, but it doesn't necessarily teach uh, a Christian values or come from that place of, you know, who we are in relationship to God. I think there's a big distinction there because sometimes we feel we're giving our children a godly education when we're just giving them a Christian friendly education and we're not actually training them in, in apologetics and training them in how to defend the scriptures. What are the evidence? Um, we're not training them, you know, it's, it's training them in man's knowledge versus training them in, in biblical knowledge. So let's say that somebody's heard what you said about curriculum. Um, obviously, you work uh, with a curriculum publisher. They say, I'm not that familiar with Masterbooks. I want to check out what you do. Uh, what are some ways that they can learn more about the Masterbooks curriculum in particular? One of the best ways is masterbooks.com. That's our website. Uh, we have a lot of information there. We also, if you're on Facebook, we have a Facebook group called Moms of Masterbooks. There's about 21,000 moms in that group, and we just have an awesome group of moderators who help 
coach and, and encourage and bless the moms that are in that group. But you can talk to a lot of experienced moms and have some input there. Those are really, you know, when the convention season is on, of course, we're at as many conventions as we can be at so people can meet us and see the books. I know you've been a big part of that effort as well. So those would be some of the best ways to connect with us. Well, again, thank you for being on the podcast today, sharing your wisdom about curriculum and how to sort through the myriad of options and choices. Uh, I definitely would like to have you back on the show again to uh, talk about uh, there's a whole bunch of stuff. You obviously can speak well to the issue of parenting and family. Um, I, I'm even uh, considering having some topics in the future here on the aspect of business, uh, just because I know that there are a lot of families that have their own businesses or they're trying to teach their children entrepreneurship. And uh, you as a, a Christian businessman, I think, can speak to that issue. So a lot of different things that we can discuss, but I appreciate your friendship. I appreciate you being on the the podcast and uh, look forward to next time. It's a privilege. Thank you, Israel. All right. Thank you. Thank you for listening to this audio presentation. For more information on Family Renewal, the writing and speaking ministry of Brooke and Israel Wayne, please visit familyrenewal.org.